Welcome to Open Minds UFO Radio, where we talk UFOs, and that's what we're doing today. I have kind of a surprise for you today, um, and uh, and then I have like kind of the normal run-of-the-mill what we do every time type of thing. Uh, the latter being that I am here with my good buddy Martin Badmo- Badmofo Willis. I thought you said bad mouth. Well, yeah, possibly. Nope. I mean, we didn't talk earlier, did we? And I said something <laughs> wrong. No? You have bad mouthed off uh, mic, you know, uh, the stuff that I have recorded and I save it. But uh, uh, I've got a lot of Martin bad mouthing various yes. people. It's le- leverage. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Just yeah. in case, because I'm afraid you've got the same. I do. Oh yeah, tons. Oh, see, I'll bet. I got it on you. Yep. So it's kind of like a um, the nuclear standoff or something. You know, I've got to keep it my is, stuff. All someone a listener has to do is send nineteen dollars and ninety five cents to <laughs> Martin Willis, and they'll get the free DVD. Oh man. Yeah. yeah. That's not cool. <laughs> All right. I can't wait to hear your surprise. My surprise? Oh, yeah. My guest. Okay, you want to guess? Guess the guest. Oh, no. Yeah, no, I'm on. really bad at stuff like that. Just you, do a wild but, stab at it. I, I doubt you'll get it. <laughs> no offense. Uh, Tom DeLong. Oh, that would be cool, but no, it's not. Actually, who it is, I'll go ahead, unless you want to try again. No, I'm done. Okay. Um, yeah. It's actually Robert Powell... MUFON's director of research, you may be thinking, um, so, but the reason why it's exciting is because we're going over the top 20 MUFON cases of 2015. So, every year the research, the scientific board of MUFON goes over all of the UFO solved cases or unsolved, unknowns essentially, to find what are the best cases. And some years, uh, it's supposed to be a top 10, but sometimes they find they don't even find 10 that they think are that great. Um, but the thing is, is they're combing over these and, you know, uh, they're looking for multiple witnesses, credible witnesses, pictures and or video. Uh, radar is even more important because pictures and video don't often turn out to be that helpful, unfortunately. Mm. So uh, these are great cases. In fact, this year they only came up with six. And they, uh, Robert actually presented them at the MUFON Symposium, and he wrote a paper about it in the proceedings. So if you get the MUFON proceedings, which I highly recommend people do, you'll be able to read about them there. Some of you don't like to read. You like to listen. And fortunately for you, you're going to be able to listen to Robert Powell momentarily 
to discuss these fascinating cases. And there are some really good ones in there. I was surprised looking them over how cool some of these cases are that I hadn't heard of. Some of them I have. Some of them we've heard as a group um, on this show before, but some of them we have not. So good stuff. I'm excited about it. And hopefully you, Excellent. the listener, yes. are now too. Are you excited about it? Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. it's always good to hear. Like It's almost like a year in review, you know, but this is through the MUFON cases. Mm-hmm. Always great. So I'm surprised. What is normally is the uh, number of unknowns that you uh, talk about? It depends. Um, I remember the first year, I think they had eight. Uh, I think normally they do have ten, but not always. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, they call it a top ten. And, in fact, I posted on the MUFON site. But um, if you go to MUFON.com under the research, you'll find the top ten UFO reports. And you'll find these reports that the scientific board puts out. Uh, Robert is ahead of that board. And um, and actually, you'll find – this a um, year ago at this time, I interviewed Robert about the 2014 cases. So – yeah, good mm-hmm. stuff. All right. Yeah. And included in these is one of their best ever. Really? According and to their statistics and numbers and calculations, and we'll talk about that. I bet I can guess what sighting that is. Oh, really? Well, I'm going to think it. I, I'm thinking it's the Puerto Rico. Wrong. I'm wrong. You're way oh, wrong. I can't buddy. wait to listen then. Okay. No, Puerto Rico was important, but that was in the past, and it wasn't technically a MUFON case. But um, and ah, I don't think right, that they right. captured that one in 2015, even though it was written about then. Um, so good guess, though, buddy. Oh uh, well, okay. Are we ready to do news? Yeah, why don't we uh, do some UFO news here? So what you got for us? Well, this is kind of a two-part uh, because there's two uh, stories on it, and mm. this had to do with a Colorado witness. Um, they see a UFO 200 feet over a neighbor's homes, and this took place um, in Longmont, Colorado, which I actually lived there for three years on 3rd Ave, I remember, um, <clears throat> when I was in my 20s. So this uh, this happened in Longmont, which is a nice, uh, beautiful little town in Colorado, and it happened on October 7th and around 8.30 p.m. And uh, the quote is, as I was reclining with my head to the west, and they always say west or, or east or south because Long's Peak is right there. You can see right to the west. So they judge everything by instead of left or right, they'll say west or, <laughs> or uh, east. It's kind of funny. Well, they saw a blur in uh, – she saw a blur in her peripheral vision to the left northeast and sat up to get a better uh, look And because they were looking for meteors that night. And uh, the witness had a good look at the object and caught a full view. It was heading west, banked sharply, uh, and at the right edge at the bottom, they could see a pale rose-colored pointed. Pretty good description. And uh, what makes this sighting uh, really interesting is that uh, a few days later, some other witness, other witnesses uh, came forward and also uh, saw that at the same time, the same. Um, and also Roger Marsh has written about that uh, also in Longmont. And 
at the same same time and all. So this witness in particular drew pictures of the lights and the triangle. Um, so it's great. It's a cooperated uh, sighting. Yeah, quite a few witnesses to this sighting and uh, another triangle sighting. Yes, another triangle. What's up with that? It's the uh, it's the UFO of our time. It is. It's it's interesting, and those seem to be the best cases. I mean, they're hmm. not the most frequent. You know, I've ran the info, and it's only three, five percent, seven, ten percent. A small amount of sightings are actual triangles, uh, but we talk about them a lot, and that is because it seems like. They're the types of objects that are getting closer to people and beaming people and, and doing all of this weird stuff. You know, someone on my show um, made a comment that they didn't think there were any daylight triangle sightings. That is a really great point because uh, I cannot think of any. Uh, the only triangle sightings I can think of are uh, ones that are actually, uh, you know, like aircraft where people take mm-hmm. a picture of something far off and they're, they're, there's a couple jets with them. So maybe some secret aircraft where it's not immediately identified as a known aircraft, but you know it's an aircraft because there's contrails, stuff like that. But you're right, an anomalous uh, triangle sighting during the day, I can't think of any at all. That's a good point. Yeah, there may be, but mm-hmm. uh, also um, it's uh, a lot of people will – uh, conject that it's, you know, military, you know, secret uh, aircraft. Um, but if that's the case, there would have to be a lot of questions answered, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Yeah. For instance, uh, why would they be over a public area where everybody could see them? Yeah, a lot of them are over public areas or seemingly making themselves uh, appear to people, like almost right. going out of their way to make sure people see it, uh, many of these stories. And why would that be? It's a good question. You know, we talked about yeah. this not too long ago with uh guy named Kevin, Sean. I forget his whole name right now, but he's got a Triangle yeah. UFO Facebook page, and we talked about that. But, uh, of course, his sighting, he got a close enough look where he said, nope, that's man-made which changed his mind completely right. about the topic. I do remember mm-hmm. hearing that. Weird. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, so I'm going to talk about what everybody's talking about, not just in UFOs, but in the news and everything, and, and that's the WikiLeaks, so an update there. And, in fact, your show, I got to talk about my full story, and I haven't even got to talk about it all here on this show. Mm-hmm. So right. there's more and more coming out, and we are we do have an update, a story that gives all of the the WikiLeaks. That one's just simply called um, Hillary's Campaign Manager's Leaked UFO Emails. And uh, we are updating that one regular. And that one kind of is an overview of all the UFO-related ones. I need to update it still from some new stuff in the last couple days uh, as these emails continue to come out. So Hillary's campaign manager, uh, John Podesta, who's been into UFOs, we've talked a lot about him. His emails have been hacked. WikiLeaks has been sending them out. Some people argued, because I said on your show how you know they found out the Russians did it. Law enforcement did say the Russians did it. So uh, it's admittedly, sometimes they're wrong, but it seems like uh, from what we can gather, they've been uh, 
feeling like this for a long time and they only recently kind of came out about it because of the evidence they feel they have um, not all of which they've shared but they wanted to be very careful before implicating Russia I believe it seems mm -hmm. so so Podesta is upset about all of this and uh, because uh, uh, although you know but we're more interested in the UFO stuff now there is an update one of the things that uh, is in there is Edgar Mitchell who's really into some kind of weird stuff with UFOs um, consciousness and disclosure and aliens and he you know Podesta received an email uh, on behalf of Edgar Mitchell from a lady named Terry Mansfield uh, and her people and they're into like a, a religious aspect so that the the aliens they believe they're communicating getting messages from them and they believe in God and they're trying to help us connect to God or something like that and she says she has some connect that contact that knows about UFOs at the Vatican or something like this but anyway she's emailed some stuff uh, to Podesta uh, allegedly on behalf of Edgar Mitchell um, we've heard from a few friends, people who know her, who say, yeah, they really were on behalf of Edgar Mitchell. And they were, very well could have been. But the question is, we already talked about that, is uh, it seems like Podesta really wasn't paying much attention. But now that more have come out, it shows that Podesta actually was willing to meet. He even sent an email saying, here's some times I'm available. Uh, let's find out if you know this these times work i guess they really? were oh. yeah so he was willing to talk to him and i guess why not you know why not talk to a, a former astronaut um great so they never did connect though so they were never able to connect and, and talk however what's more exciting is tom delong tom delong interviewed podesta back in july we know this because he posted this on facebook uh, that he interviewed Podesta when he's and he's trying to do some sort of documentary on UFOs. Well, some information of Tom and uh, emailing Podesta to meet more. So he emailed and said, I want to meet with you and Steven Spielberg and a couple other important people. He emailed a few times. Uh, we don't know if any of those meetings came about. However, one very important meeting we do know came about because John Podesta uh, sent out an email to Tom DeLong and a couple other people to uh, join a Google Hangout. And this Google hmm. Hangout was going to be with Michael Carey, who was uh, someone apparently working with Tom DeLong. In fact, he did an Amazon review of Tom DeLong's book. Uh, so it seems like they've been in contact. This guy is really interesting. He is retired. And he was a special assistant to the commander of Air Force Space Command. Ooh. Right. Isn't that Air Force Space Command, for goodness sake. So, and that's housed out of Peterson Air Force Base, uh, right outside of NORAD, Cheyenne Mountain, that big mountain made famous in the movie War Games. Mm -hmm. Another person uh, who was invited, and we know went because they replied with an acceptance is a man named General McCasland. Now, if you go to his Air Force bio, it says he's still doing this job, although Tom DeLong, uh, in one of his emails, referenced McCasland and referenced him as someone who uh, used to work here. But this is a guy, another major general, and he was in charge of research labs at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Of course, that's where mm -hmm. Blue Book went down. That's where, allegedly, the... Uh, 
Roswell UFO went, as Tom pointed out in one of his emails. This is also where there's an, an alleged alien. You know, this is where um, mm. Goldwater, uh, former senator from Arizona, had said that he talked to a friend and asked him, I want to see the blue room, the room with the aliens. And his friend told him, don't you ever ask me about that again. That's right. And so he's like, oh, okay, sorry, dude. No, he didn't talk like that at all. But uh, <laughs> that's just my own kind of uh, making the story more interesting. Um, so those two were there. Uh, another person that was there is a guy named, or we don't know if he was there, but another person invited was Rob Weiss. And this is a guy who is an executive vice president uh, for Lockheed Martin's Aeronautics Spunk, Skunk Works. I almost said spunk like spunky fella, but no, skunk huh. works. And I'm sure people in UFOs typically know what skunk works is because these are the guys who actually built Area 51 uh, with the CIA and develop, you know, these top secret aircraft at Area 51. So this is essentially uh, one of the Area 51 bosses. So one mm -hmm. of the head head honchos of Area 51 along with the head honcho at Wright, a head honcho at Wright-Patterson and uh, Air Force Space Command, and John Podesta, the campaign manager for the person who is likely to be the next president. All of these people together talking UFOs. Oh, and of course, rock star Tom DeLonge. How crazy is that? I think that's, that's a wow. That yeah, is a wow major moment. wow. Mm -hmm. So out of all these emails, I think this is the most exciting. Now, these are the facts. Some people, I think, are speculating a bit, and you may agree with their speculation. That is fine. I don't want to speculate because I don't know what was discussed at these uh, these meetings. But, of course, some people are speculating that they're talking about disclosure, um, that now, you know, it's going to get disclosed. UFOs are going to be disclosed in the next three months. They're probably planning how to do it and how to roll it out and all of that stuff. I'm skeptical of that. For one reason is, you know, I like to have proof before I can I speculate too wildly. The other reason is the last email in this string was DeLong to uh, Podesta. And he seemed a little bit uh, uh, concerned or about what McCasland had said during the meeting. Um, DeLong wrote to Podesta, he mentioned he's a skeptic. He's not. I've been working with him for four months. I just got done giving him a four-hour presentation on the entire project a few weeks ago. So Tom DeLong, who believes, you know, we've back-engineered UFO technology, in this mm. email says he even though in this meeting he might have says he was said he was a skeptic he's not and and he is into what I'm talking about he says he talked to him for 4 hours he said that McCaslin also helped him get contacts to help him with his project and so that's kind of shocking too that um you know this Wright Patterson guy's helping a guy who wants to show the world that you know we back engineered UFO technology or alien technology so um, so the meeting might not have been as interesting as we thought, but there's still some interesting stuff going on. And the big thing for me is, you know, Tom DeLong actually was talking to some pretty interesting people. Yeah, I know. And this General McCasland is is very interesting. And uh, in that email you just mentioned, 
he also said that when Roswell crashed, they shipped it to the laboratory at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. General McCasland was in charge of that exact laboratory a couple of years ago. It doesn't mean that that actually happened, but it means that that's what he's speculating. Yeah, so he's he's kind of alluding to McCasland would know more there, would know something about Roswell. Mm-hmm. If he was in charge of the labs where the Roswell craft went um supposedly but yeah. there's a lot of assumptions because you know well was the roswell object something strange or blah 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 uh we don't know but we do know i mean at least tom DeLong's beliefs which are you know these things were et in nature and they were back engineered he that's what he says and his new mm-hmm. book which um uh this carry guy reviewed uh is a fiction book, but Tom DeLonge says it's based on like his deep throat insiders, uh, inside knowledge. And and he really, you know, I've written a story about this. He really believes he's going to be a conduit to to UFO disclosure. So mm. there are also a couple photos in there uh, that show us a little bit of inside of what Tom DeLonge's working on. Uh, he's gotten his novel out, but uh, supposedly he's working on a documentary. This is where the interview with Podesta should be coming out. Uh, possibly even a feature film. And he referenced a video, a teaser about what he's working on. Now, somebody sent me a note somehow. And this is, I. it would be good if you want to, and if you're a listener, you know, and you want to get this information to me, emailing's really helpful because I can get to that email. I can't remember where they, you know, what, it could have been Facebook, it could have been Twitter, I can't find it anymore. But someone sent me a link that was allegedly to this um, little video kind of promoting things, and I guess it has a picture or of uh, of Tom DeLong interviewing Podesta. Um, I have one in my story that Tom DeLong had put out on his Facebook, but I guess there's some more, like a little piece of the video or something. I haven't seen that video yet. Uh, when I do see that, I'll embed that in the story, assuming there's no copyright issue or anything like that with it. But um, yeah, pretty interesting stuff. There are some more WikiLeaks. Nothing, I you know, terribly interesting. There, there. Leslie Kane's name has come up uh, hmm. in her conversations with Podesta. Um, I have talked oh, to her a bit, but she doesn't really want to talk about it. She's uh, like Podesta is upset. She feels this is a major invasion of privacy, and uh, she doesn't think it's right. Understandably so. So. Um, just so you know, if uh, she doesn't really want to talk about it, uh, maybe in the future she will. But at least it indicates, yeah, she's she definitely, as she said in the past, was very close to Podesta, and they did talk on these items. Of course, Podesta did a foreword to her book, so um, right, that's mm-hmm. pretty cool. Yeah. Now I wonder when uh, Tom DeLong is planning on releasing this film and how he's planning on releasing it, and wouldn't that be something if he would do it at the UFO Congress in February? Oh, that would be really cool. That would I don't know. Else. I'll reach out again. I do have a, at least a few mutual friends, actually. Um, he did come to the Congress a couple years ago uh, to George see. George Knapp. Uh, he did come to the Congress a couple years ago to see. Uh, um, no, not George Knapp. But yeah, actually, yes, George Knapp and Bob Lazar. And he hung out with them um, for a while. but uh, And we've got an interview, an Open Minds interview I embedded in the story of it where you know we sent our video guy out and uh, 
uh, Jason and Maureen, they interviewed Tom DeLong uh, face-to-face, so we've got that video online as well in the story. But um, I, I've reached out last year to see if you would want to come and talk about – almost every year I reach out, and I, I get actually often a response through the channels – um so i'll try again that's a really great point. i would yeah that would even be if you could just show a trailer yeah right you yeah. know that would get people in a tizzy that would get them so excited mm-hmm. absolutely they would be uh very excited i'd be very excited about that oh my yeah. gosh so there you go it. yeah all right um are we closing? Because I'd like to just mention something really quickly. Yeah, I wanted I, to mention something too. Oh, you did. Do you want I me to go? I'll go first. Okay, go ahead. Okay. I just wanted to mention I've heard a few mo- notes uh, from people about my ankylosing spondylitis, and I, I'm glad. And this is, of course, a back issue I have. It's akin to rheumatoid arthritis that attacks your spine, um, and it causes fusing of the spine. Uh, some of you may notice that, you know, I kind of have a little bit of a, a hunch. My head's bent forward a little. It's due to that, uh, and it can be extremely painful. Um, luckily, I've gone to the doctor, and I've had some different drugs and stuff. I'm in between a couple, and so it's it's kind of been a real pain literally um, recently. But uh, it's great that I've heard a lot of positive feedback. Uh, one point is that women can get it too. Uh, that is important. And another one is just that, you know, people have been finding how prevalent it is. But if you have back pain and you're younger, it comes on in the 20s. And it usually only lasts a few years. But if you have extreme cases like mine, unfortunately, it lasts longer and can do more and more damage. Many of those people you see crouched over, that's what they've had. Um, so it can be damaging. If you catch it earlier and you can cause the inflammation to stay down, then you won't have the fusing and you won't get, you know, bent down like my neck or other people have it much worse. So if you have back pain that your doctor can't figure out, go check out uh, your rheumatologist and have them check you. And they can even tell just from your your spine. It was actually my chiropractor who identified it, who told me to go to the rheumatologist. Unfortunately, though, for many, 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 many years, my doctors just said, you've got normal back pain. Don't worry about it. And I was like, well, really? It really hurts. And they're like, yeah, uh, you know, people get back pain. And they do. I do understand that. But if they would have diagnosed me 12 years earlier or so, I could have probably saved some of the um, mobility that I've since lost. I, oh, I mean, I can barely that. look to the left or right very much. Or, uh, or bending down, not going to happen. So, um, yeah. Yeah, it must get be that hard to out. drive. No, it's hard when you're driving and you come up to a stop sign. You have to look, you know, well, left and right. Yeah, I kind of got to bend my body more. It's more sometimes like the exit near my house off the highway is you have to turn more than a 90 degree angle to see. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that gets really hard. That's really annoying. Yeah, but my yeah. grandmother used to get stuck in the garage because she couldn't turn her. She used to wedge her car in the garage and my uncle would have to run and move it for her because she couldn't turn. Oh, really? She couldn't turn her head. Oh, yeah. wow. Arthritis. arthritis. Uh, but uh, that's uh, a good message you're getting out there. And, uh, uh, you know, I hope you can uh, get these treatments done. You'll get some relief from Yeah, that. I just – I would love for just to – for people to know about it because who knew? You know, I didn't mm-hmm. know 
this would happen and uh, or that this thing existed. So I want people to know and get it checked out. Yeah, that's a good message. Um, so my my thing that I want to talk about real quickly is that uh, the new Hubble discovery uh, that there's about 20 times more galaxies out there in our universe than first expected. Um, this was done, um, it was actually with 3D modeling of images collected over 20 years. So about 2 trillion galaxies in the known universe instead of 200 billion, as they used to always say. Amazing, huh? Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. yeah, it's absolutely incredible. I mean, it's just mind-boggling, literally. It's just hard to conceive. Um, but to out of that two trillion, um, that's the thing. Is there is not most likely not only extraterrestrial civilizations out there or other life, but uh, there could be other life even at the same stage we're on somewhere. And yeah. uh, it would be great if at least somehow, you know, to get some insight about how they're surviving or how they're making it. Because, uh, you know, especially the Russian relations breaking down and nukes and all the, the kind of willy-nilly references to nukes we've had lately, it's um, it can be pretty scary. Yes, and by the way, if you were to count... Um, to just one trillion, it would take you thirty-one thousand seven hundred nine years to count to one trillion. Mm-hmm. Wow! Better start counting. Okay, yeah. let's try it. One, <laughs> two. I'll talk to you next week. Yeah, and we'll see what number you're on. I know. Yeah. Won't be too far. No, I'm not going to do that. That's counting is no fun. All right. Well, thank you very much. Anything else? That's it for me today. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Martin Willis, for joining us once again, and we'll talk to you next week. Great. Thanks a lot. Until then, let us talk to Mr. Robert Powell. I am very happy to have back on the show Robert Powell, and, uh, you know, we had you back. We've had you back the last couple times to talk about the top ten UFO cases uh, for the year for MUFON, and I felt like maybe you had this one ready earlier. But then I went and looked, and actually, it was about a year ago uh, where we did the did an interview like this uh, for the 2014, and here we are about the same time of year talking about 2015 cases. Right, time just flies. It does. It really flies. So how you doing? Oh, I'm doing great, Alejandro. It's good to be back talking to you. Yeah. Again. Yeah, so I uh, have referenced uh, these cases in, uh, and I'll be following along with the MUFON uh, Symposium Proceedings. Uh, the symposium just have been just recently, I mean just a couple of months ago. But these proceedings are great. I mean it's one cool thing about the symposium is that all the speakers write a paper and that information then can all be referenced in the proceedings. And these can be uh, purchased at MUFON.com, correct? That's correct. They can be purchased on the MUFON.com website. Yeah, so really cool. I mean, I love it. I've got uh, my big long paper in here, but uh, all the other speakers, including you, you've got these cases. Uh, and uh, for instance, just a couple 
shows ago I had Ben Moss and Tony Angiola and uh, so the whole everything they were talking about with uh, the Lonnie Zamora Socorro case is, is in here as well so I definitely recommend people pick up the uh, proceedings yeah Let's... absolutely I think they'll get a lot out of it mm-hmm but uh, we shall proceed. So this is fun. This is an interesting one, too. I'm excited to talk to you about these cases. Uh, as your job as a director of research on MUFON and part of the Scientific Review Board, um, you all review the cases for the last year and uh, go over the best cases. So that's what we'll be talking about. Um, and one of the things that you do is kind of an executive summary as well. And I was looking that over. I guess this isn't in the proceedings, but um, I, I saw this earlier. Are you using some sort of software now to help you out with this procedure? You mean in terms of how we choose uh, which cases? Uh-huh. Um, we use Excel, so I don't guess I could quite call that a, a okay. software. But um, I use Excel spreadsheets to I saw kind of something... play out the cases. A reference to something called Trendicity or something like oh, that? Oh, Trendicity, yes. Yeah. Um, okay, so Trendicity, uh, I can tell you a little bit about that. It's kind of interesting. Uh, we had a guy by the name of uh, Rob Downing out of California. He's a, uh, a software professor, and he called um, with some software that basically goes out into the Internet and it searches for keywords. So, for example, if you were looking for something interesting about the Lonnie Zamora case, his software would go out and look at every time the word, you know, Zamora or, you know, any keywords you identify show up on the Internet. Hmm. So um, he was kind of seeing if we would be interested in that. So when I talked to Rob, uh, I said, you know, what would be more interesting for me is to actually take your software and rather than looking at the internet, point it towards the MUFON database mm -hmm. uh, for, of cases. And so what I did is I spent about one year with him uh, working on a lexicon. A lexicon is basically a dictionary of words. Um, and what you do is, is you rate words uh, from plus 10 to minus 10, you give them values. Uh, th this is very similar to what, for example, the NSA or the CIA may do with your Facebook accounts or other things that supposedly they should not be looking at, but they will look for keywords. So, mm -hmm. for example, if they see the word bomb and the word explosive, and uh, they it increases the algorithm increases the likelihood that they should take a look. At your information so it's the same type of concept except we take this lexicon and develop it to look for strong UFO cases okay interesting and so you worked on that and is it as it finished or still in progress the, it's it's completed um, so the systems ready to go and right now we're at a point where we were just trying to convince other individuals within MUFON mm -hmm. that this is a is the way to go in mm -hmm. terms of identifying uh, the cases that are the strongest cases that are submitted to MUFON. Ah, how cool! 
Well, that sounds interesting. And what sort of things are you looking at? Like number of witnesses, maybe uh, how close the objects are, things like that? Right. We look, uh, the software actually looks at a uh, number of witnesses and then it looks at keywords that the witness uses in his report. So oh. basically, words that are descriptive and are mm-hmm. analytical, those type of words get plus points. Words that are emotional uh, and prejudicial, those words get minus points. Oh, interesting. You know what this reminds me of? It's something I've seen recently that you've probably seen because we both do some real estate on the side. And uh, sometimes these reports will come out right. on uh, what terms to use to help you sell your, your homes more quickly. And uh, what's funny is it's based solely off of numbers, not logic, not like, you know, you can understand why the behavior is the way it is, but that uh, it is the way it is. Exactly. Yeah, it's basically what you're saying. It's the same type of concept uh, just used on UFO reports. Wow. I mean, Mm-hmm. You, you've you know you've read you know hundreds and hundreds of different UFO reports, mm-hmm. right? And I'm sure as you read the witness's description, within the first paragraph, you probably have a pretty good idea of whether this is going to be a good case or a bad case or maybe something in between. Mm-hmm. And that's basically what the software algorithm does. Mm-hmm. Ah, that's really interesting. Yeah, in fact, it just re- it reminds me too of you know just thinking about this at the end of the year. Often, you know, we do a podcast usually with Lee Spiegel, um, and we talk about kind of the top stories of the year. Not always necessarily the best cases, but also the culturally significant cases uh, or or what have you. Um, but um, it's kind of something we do already in our brains, and that you guys do here with your your review board, but. One thing that's going to be interesting, I think, with with this year's cases that you or the 2015 cases that we're talking about here is um, the ones that uh, you know may end up being in our top ten at the end of the year because some of these are really interesting cases. Um, moving on, though, you know the other thing that's really interesting here is the analysis that you did on the number of sightings. So at least. Uh, since 2008, this was kind of a, a record year for the number of sightings, uh, 2015. Right. We had a large number of sightings this year. and But, you know, the interesting thing is once we complete the analysis of these, you know, six to 7,000 sightings, um, we boil it down to this year we actually only had six, ca- six cases that made our what we call, quote, the top 10. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that number can fluctuate around the number 10. And this year, I, we only had six cases that actually made the cut. Right. So not too many. And it looked like, uh, you know, you were kind of crediting uh, the increase of sightings this year to the Hangar 1 television show, or I mean in 2015, really, the Hangar 1 television show, which which makes sense. It's focused on MUFON, brings a, a lot more attention to MUFON. However, it seems like for you all, this kind of highlighted how unusual the, the uh, large number of sightings in 2012 was prior to the television show, kind of, uh, and there was a statement in that summary that I thought 
was a pretty strong statement, really, especially knowing you all and how careful you are about how you look at this information that uh, it led you all to kind of believe that perhaps 2012 there was just an increase in sightings overall, perhaps. Right. When I went through the numbers, and I noticed this last year and then this year uh, when we did the 2015 numbers, it only uh, strengthened uh, that view, which is that uh, 2012 was probably our best year in the last, let's say, uh, eight years in terms of the number of reports uh, and sightings. And, Even and, though the number mm-hmm. wasn't as large. Uh, yeah. Which indicates a possibility that there were more genuine um, UFOs uh, over the country in 2012. Right, Ex- exactly. That That is uh, correct. The uh, Because actually in the year 2012, if you look just at number of, of when the sightings occur, right, and not when the sightings are submitted, but when they occur, so far the year 2012 has had the highest number of sightings, despite the fact that the years 2014 and 15, in my opinion, received a little boost because of Hangar 1. Mm-hmm. That is interesting. It's almost like they heard the, the rumors that uh, it we were all ending twenty nurse was going to blow up or something in twenty twelve. They came <laughs> to to check it out and uh, went home when nothing happened. I guess. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I do recall in two thousand twelve that was the first year we began our top ten uh, reports, and we we had uh, definitely had ten strong cases that year. Mm-hmm. I wonder if. Uh, it has to do with just the number of media stories about UFOs and things because of the 2012 um, issue. Well, I, you know, I can't think of anything specific mm-hmm. that happened in 2012 that drove the numbers up. Um, I can think of something for 2014 and 15, right, which was Hangar One. Right. But even with Hangar One, it didn't it did not drive the numbers up sufficiently uh, to exceed what happened in 2012. Right. Uh, as, as a matter of fact, I've, I've got a plan to write a report on this one of these days, Alejandro, but what I'm looking at, right, you, you know, over history, there were certain years where we had a large number of UFO sightings, such mm-hmm. as 1957, 1965. And that's based on reports that occur within a year or two of those time frames, right? Mm-hmm. And so one of the arguments from uh, debunkers is, well, it, it's all due to media reports or, you know, some unusual event happened that year, right? Well, I've already done a cursory look at, for example, take the year 1957, uh, at reports that happen in a given year, but the reports were made 10, 15, or 20 years later. Well, if you if you look at reports that came in later, those years are still peak years, mm-hmm. right? So if it's the media, those should those should no longer be peak years when you're looking 
at reports that are put in 10 and 15 years after these events occur. Right. That would be a really interesting study. and um, It's going to take me a while to write it because I have yeah. to do it properly and so that statistically it, it makes sense. Yeah, that's the hard thing is the time it takes to do any of this, um, which reminds me of another point in your summary, which is that you all have a deficit when it comes to investigators. You need investigators because uh, more and more uh, reports aren't, are being left without getting investigated. Right, that's always a problem, mm -hmm. and uh, you know that we need more investigators, and we need good quality investigators. Investigators that uh, know how to write a report and know how to do an investigation mm -hmm. based on skills they may have learned either in college, college, or in a previous job. Yep. So, and I, you know, I was about to, I was thinking of making fun of kind of the people who sit at their computers looking at UFO stuff all day, but, uh, you know, a more productive thing than looking at yeah, the UFO stuff all, all day is to kind of get out there and do some investigations because that was me. I mean, I was in a hole reading about, you know, reading all the books, looking online, and finally I decided, well, I need to hit the ground. You know, I did need to hit the streets and started becoming an investigator and, uh, way back when for MUFON. And uh, it, it's it's beneficial. You learn so much by talking to people. Oh, absolutely. And, it, you know, if you look at it, a lot of the debunkers that exist online that are kind of – they troll the Internet. And basically, they they never – I, I don't know of any debunkers who actually have gone out and done, for example, a hundred uh, investigations and talked to individuals. Mm -hmm. They just look at whatever, you know, us or someone else puts online, and then they try to draw a conclusion. And and they've never actually physically gone out and done an investigation. Right. And I think that's what's it. You really get a more um, a larger impact. When it comes to anecdotal information, when you go talk to witnesses, uh, you know, everybody's all about pictures and videos these days, which often don't offer up a whole lot more data than we had in the first place. And uh, and it just highlights at least when when you really if you're skeptical, even to it, the importance of that anecdotal evidence, because a lot of times these people are very intelligent very capable, um, and they really are describing something uh, very odd. No, exactly. And, you know, some people go, well, I need to see a picture. Well, the reality of the, the situation is if someone just gives me a picture of a UFO and says, here's a picture, well, that really means not a lot unless I've got a witness who can describe what occurred and give background on the picture that's been provided. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's, it's just a, just a photo without any information really uh, to put with you know to create an actual story of what occurred. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these cases that we'll we'll go over here are anecdotal, but some aren't. And uh, some there some of these well, they're all really interesting cases. So I guess let's start going over those. And uh, I'm just going to go in order. I know it'll probably make you have to shuffle through all your files, um, <laughs> unfortunately. 
but unless would it be easier for you if if you just uh take the lead and and go through them uh sure let's see um, let's do that then okay do you want to start with uh the strongest cases or or just let's go just start with them in general yeah yeah let's start in general we'll randomize okay. it all right well, the first case I'll start with is one that happened in late October of last year. It was in a, a city called Dunwoody, Georgia, which is actually, and this means more to your listeners probably, that's a suburb of Atlanta, Georgia. It's uh, 7.20 p.m. at night. There's three adult witnesses and two teenagers. Uh, they're in two different cars, and they're basically driving – uh, in the suburbs just outside of the loop that goes around Atlanta when they see uh, what initially they think are fireballs or some type of meteoric activity. Well, the, what made them decide that these weren't just fireballs is how slow the fireball was moving. And as they continued uh, to drive and watch uh, this fireball, uh, they noticed that it came to a standstill, and then they saw what looked like a triangular object basically kind of take form out of this fireball that they had seen. And so that that's what was really interesting about this particular case. So we've got uh, multiple witnesses, which was a big plus for the case, and we've got strangeness by strangeness i mean uh it's not what you would expect someone to report mm -hmm. so that makes it less likely it's a hoax when there's some unique characteristic uh noted in the case well then the next thing that we were able to determine in this case is the investigator which was uh Howard out of uh, who's also the uh, state director in the state of uh, Georgia. He investigated this case uh, himself. And so Ralph, uh, as part of his investigation, went to try to figure out, could this be meteorite? So he goes to the AMS meteorite site. And sure enough, at the same time and date that the MUFON witnesses reported this, he found, I believe it was four other witnesses that had reported into the AMS database. And some of the comments that those witnesses made, and these are people who, that's what they do uh, for their hobby, is they basically go look for meteorites. Uh, one comment was, this was far slower than any meteor I have ever seen before. Hmm. And another one wrote, there were two fireballs with glowing trails like something breaking apart. And then the really interesting one wrote, there are two fireballs. And then in parentheses, I have a video and it looks like something black came out of the second fireball before it disappeared. Wow. And Rouse tried to get the, uh, the video from uh, this other witness and so far has not had success with that. So, this case became more valuable after we obtained these statements from the AMS observers because it it established that there was definitely an object and 
we did some triangulation of where the object was, and it had to be fairly close to the Atlanta, Georgia area, someplace within 50 miles of, of that location or closer. That is pretty wild. I mean, that report of something black coming out of it, um, that is really strange, especially, you know, a third-party website, the AMS website. That's pretty cool. And they also, the witness described something weird, like a a, a purplish, uh, um, like, swirl under the, the black triangle. Right. Is, is the black triangle formed? There was a purplish swirl, and there was a light that seemed to just kind of rotate around that the back end of this object as it was uh, uh, sitting there up in the sky. Mm-hmm. So this is a pretty unique one. I mean, I can't recall a similar sighting I, I've read about. Can you? No, no, I can't. And that—that's the other strength to this case is, uh, other than to try to say this was some type of meteor which coming to a standstill kind of makes it difficult to argue this was a meteor, mm-hmm. and it's going very slow to start with. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's not something we can easily explain, so that's why this one made our, our list of top cases for 2015. Yeah, that's a weird one. All right, what's next? Well, the next case, we will go across the pond, as <laughs> the Brits like to say, and go to Yorkshire, England, and this, this is actually an older case. It was submitted in 2015, but the case actually occurred in uh, mid-October of 1996. What made this case strong was the witness was a, a former policeman. And so he basically waited until he retired to report this particular case. Hmm. But it was clear that the case really had cemented cemented itself in his mind because this guy wrote three or four pages on exactly what transpired wow on this day he he was uh, he was out doing normal patrol he was in an area that was very close to a uh, I don't think you'd call it a national park but a large park area in uh, just west of Sheffield England uh, this witness he had been on the police force for 20 years. Uh, he was out basically looking for an in the, uh, suspicious individual who he'd seen going through the neighborhoods, and he wanted to make sure this guy, you know, wasn't up to anything uh, harmful. But as he was out doing this, uh, he observes this uh, light in the sky. Uh, at first, he thought maybe it was a white searchlight, and so. Uh, it's about a thousand yards from him, so you know, roughly half a mile. And he gets on his radio, and he asks, you know, is there any uh, traffic accidents in the area? And you know, do we have helicopters investigating a traffic accident? So the response comes back, no, there's no traffic, you know, accident. We do not have any helicopters in the sky. And so, right as he's, you know, talking. That light beam just goes out. And this is the weird thing, is all of a sudden this officer says he sees this vast size of a dark object uh, just suddenly move quickly towards him in a straight line. And the officer said, I mean, he says, you know, this sounds crazy, but it, it's almost like this happened as soon as I 
radioed in to check on, you know, was, were there any helicopters in the area. This uh, dark object comes right on top of his vehicle. Uh, and there's no, at the time, there was no lighting on the object until suddenly it illuminates his vehicle with a, a neon blue light. And, uh, of course, the officers, uh, he's quite scared at the time. And he stays in his vehicle. He does, he does not get out, um, until the light turns off. Now, once that, uh, light goes out, he exits his vehicle and he sees this huge triangular object, you know, moving away from his vehicle. What makes this case interesting <laughs> is that, a lot of stuff. Yeah. It is that basically, uh, the object's so close to him, right? And his description is so kind of in his face that this is one of those cases, either it happened or this officer's making it up. Mm-hmm. It, it's hard to say he misidentified something. Yeah. This is that. And, and the thing is, is this is a story we have heard before quite a bit, even. Um, I mean, it was even portrayed in Close Encounters where uh, of these craft, you know, beaming people or beaming lights onto vehicles. Um, it, it's kind of a common occurrence. I mean, you, you, I'm sure you've heard. I mean, you've been at the Congress and probably heard him say it live. But Lee Spiegel has had his own, own experience similar to this. But so have many people I've interviewed. So that lends credibility to this case. But also there are often in including Bill, um, MUFON man Bill, who I had on this show, who also spoke at the symposium, and other law enforcement or military or people uh, who have jobs that uh, they don't want to um, have affected, uh, you know, who will wait until they retire to share their reports because um, they don't want any negative repercussions on their careers. And I think that lends credibility to this case as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, a lot of times people ask, well, why did this individual wait so long? And mm -hmm. the reason you just gave, uh, reporting a UFO case that's, you know, that attracts a lot of public attention when you're still employed is, it's not something most people are willing to do. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I was talking at a library, uh, the other day and I kind of likened it to if you saw a ghost, right? It's like, who would say they saw a ghost? Because everyone's going to look at you like, yeah. you all right? <laughs> and, and that's almost the way it's become with UFOs. The topic's been marginalized so much by the media uh, with the craziness the media comes up with that it's almost like saying you saw a ghost. Mm -hmm. And this person is not alone. And this is another triangle uh, case. And I know there's a couple more I think we're going to be going over here, but uh, it's just interesting. Here's two already out of six that are these triangular objects. Now, looking at your numbers, uh, triangles are only a, a fairly small percentage of what's reported, yet those cases often are like, are some of the most extraordinary cases. Yeah, that's that's a good point, uh, Alejandro, because that is the case. Uh, the triangular-type reports are much more prevalent in our top ten than their, their percentage pre uh, 
than the percentage of cases that are reported to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would I, I could get the actual number, but it's somewhere I would say in the neighborhood of ten to fifteen percent, more like ten percent of cases are triangle cases. Yet they make up probably thirty to fifty percent of our uh, top cases. Mm-hmm. Which is also true of, of the people I talk to or interview or some of the. The shocking cases, um, like Lee's or others, yeah, these triangular cases. At, there's, it's, it's a such a fascinating phenomena, um, and I know many people will think, oh, it's just the TR3B, but I mean, I personally do not believe there is a TR3B. Now, there could be some sort of, and there are. I mean, we do read stories about triangular shaped craft um, that are advanced craft. Just that particular moniker uh i i doesn't appear to be that but uh uh there are advanced crafts that are triangular in shape that we probably don't know about but um and that's the age-old argument and and i mean where do you come down on that that um in these cases that you've looked at do these triangular craft seem to um all or maybe in part demonstrate technology that we may have or do you feel that some of them demonstrate technology that we certainly do not well you know a, a percentage of the triangle cases reported to us clearly are uh you know like the uh b2 or the uh rb117 uh jet fighter uh the, the triangular cases but but normally the those uh, they're an object at a distance. Mm-hmm. Uh, often there's a small amount of noise with them. Uh, I've seen the B-2 uh, or heard it over a military operating area before, and it's not silent. Yeah. I mean, it's much more quiet than a regular craft, jet. But the thing that uh, differentiates those type of triangular reports and the type that are very interesting in maple top group is usually... It's a report of a large triangular object. By large, I mean it's a hundred feet or larger. There's usually a significant thickness to the object. And normally the object has the capability, this huge object has a capability of just sitting still, not even moving. Mm-hmm. And like on our science review board, like one of the members on our board, uh, worked for Lockheed, uh, his degrees in physics, and we've got other guys. All of them are science, have science backgrounds, so we all realize that the military is 20 years ahead of what our current technologies are that we have. But these are technologies that are much beyond 20 years ahead of us because we do not have a technology that can take a large craft, such as, such as a Boeing 747, and let it just sit without moving. Mm-hmm. Now you can do that, right? For example, the F-35 can do it using reverse thrusters and using a huge amount of fuel. I mean, it's not going to sit there for very long before it runs out of fuel. And same thing with the Harrier jets. But that what goes with those is a lot of noise. Mm-hmm. When you've got a jet like that that's just trying to sit still by using its thrusters. But in the case of these triangular craft, there's no noise. 
and it's huge, and it's just sitting there. I mean, you know, it would have to be, you would have to say, oh, this must be some type of dirigible that's just sitting there. But the problem with that is they sit there just for a period of time, and then they take off at a high rate of speed. Mm-hmm. So this is just something that it's too far advanced for one to consider it uh, some type of terrestrial uh, aircraft. Mm-hmm. What a great case. This is such a cool case, and these triangles are so odd, so strange. All right, the next one. Okay, so the next case is out of Utah. This happened uh, on January 14th of this year, and, and it started when a ham radio operator uh, sent in a report to MUFON, basically, of a case he heard over his ham radio. Well, if that had been all that was done, this case wouldn't have gotten very far. But the uh, field investigators on this case, and, th- and there were several of them, uh, there was Erica Lutz, who's the state director in Utah, and Jeff Cox, and then William Puckett, who helped them with the radar data. What made this case unique is they sent out freedom of information requests to the FAA, and they obtained the voice transcripts of this American airline pilot talking about this unknown object. So we had the, the proof that what the ham operator heard was correct. And then William obtained radar data, and his radar data showed an unknown object in the same direction as the American airline pilot said he saw this unknown and at the same time that it was reported. So now you have too much coincidence that you have radar data that's coinciding with when a pilot says he sees an unknown object off his two o'clock from his aircraft. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we. So that's that's what made this case interesting is that we had radar data and and pilot transcripts that supported uh, what occurred. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting case. I had Erica on the show to talk about it. Um, How did you all feel? One of the theories is that what the pilot saw was actually on the ground, possibly, uh, you know, people burning off their their fields like they do. Um, And it's also kind of on the highway, so it could have been something on the ground. Did you guys... Look at that, and how did you feel about that? Well, one thing the field investigators actually did is they drove out to the exact area, mm-hmm. and they looked for any type of burn marks or any type of burning of uh, vegetation, and nothing like that was seen. But probably what argues the most against that being anything occurring on the ground are the radar returns, mm-hmm. because the radar returns would not pick up something occurring on the ground. And the reason is the distance between where this happened and the radar, you have curvature of the earth. Mm -hmm. And so this is the same reason you hear the comments sometimes when the planes flew under radar. Well, that's because they flew so low that the radar could not detect them. Mm -hmm. And that's what the case was here. And then finally, to kind of really cement this, uh, we took, um, or William Puckett took the work that he had done and submitted it to Martin Shaw 
who's a retired air traffic controller in England. And Martin's very uh, conservative on how he views radar data and UFOs. And he looked at it and he said that he could see no explanation that would indicate this was a local feature or that this was any type of uh, uh, radar ghost that was the uh, radar was pinging off of, such as uh, an inversion layer. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and it's right where the pilots say it was. Yeah, that's see, that's the thing. This is just like in the Stephenville case. I mean, you've got a witness that says he sees it there and he sees it at time X. And then you get the radar data, and at time X, there is an object on the radar. So mm -hmm. that makes it very difficult to argue with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really interesting. And unfortunately, as far as I can remember, uh, they have not been able to get a hold of the pilots. No, they've tried to do that, and they've yeah. had uh, no success. And most pilots um, do not want to talk about right. you know, UFOs. Mm -hmm. All right, the next one. Okay, this case occurred in the spring of 2015 on June 4th in Iowa, uh, a town called Marengo, which probably doesn't mean too much to anyone. And the investigators were Beverly Trout and David Kreider. And this was a triangle case again. Um, this is a, a little bit of a different type of triangle. It's not your typical in that, the triangle had a bluish color, bluish white lights on it. And usually with triangle cases, it's red lights. Um, so the, this was a case where the two at, you have two adults, you've got multiple witnesses, and they're driving home from, I believe they were at the movies. And, and these are, uh, I think they were in their fifties. And as they're driving home, they see a, a bright light in front of them and, and they're trying to, they're debating, you know, what could this be? And, you know, it's in the Northwest. So maybe it's a star capella, but their initial thoughts dissolve pretty quickly because as they continue to approach, the object gets brighter and brighter until finally they begin to make out the shape to the object. So now, you know, the question, could this be a star, is gone. Because they get within 300 feet of the object. That's their best guess. And they see a crisscross pattern of bluish-white lights along its sides. So, again, we have a triangular object with a lot of thickness to it. And they describe the object beginning to slowly move away from them to the east. And then it suddenly accelerates. And within a matter of two seconds, it's moved miles and it's gone. Mm -hmm. So the, the strength in this case was we had uh, multiple witnesses and they came within a uh, fairly close distance of this object. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this one's neat too because you, there's a, uh, a artist rendering, um, so it really gives you a good feeling of, of what how extraordinary it would have been to see these crisscrossing lights on this object. Right. Another cool one. So the next one. Okay, the next case is an interesting one out of New York, uh, Montgomery, New York. This is up in north in the northern parts of New York. It's in a very rural area, and the uh, two investigators were Sam Falvo and Joseph Flammer. This happened in the middle of August of last year. It's 9 o'clock in the evening, and you've got uh, 
several witnesses to this. Uh, basically, what's going on is there's a 17-year-old boy and his grandmother and uh, his her, her other daughter, and they're sitting uh, out looking at what they call heat lightning that happens sometimes in the summertime. And so the boy decides he wants to get a closer view of this heat lightning. And there are woods in between him and an open field. So he takes off to go through the woods so that he can get to this open field, which is just a couple of hundred yards past where they were viewing this heat lightning. So as he gets into this open area, he sees what he described as a saucer-type object that was 30 feet across. And he says a light beam shone down from the object and depressed the grass. And the mother's older daughter also saw two a red and orange orb, but from farther away. So once this report came in, Sam went out within 48 hours of the event and he brought his, uh, you know, EM meter and his Geiger counter. His uh, EM meter did not show anything unusual where the grass was depressed. So he's out in this depressed grass area. He videos himself. So we have the video of Sam taking the readings. And his uh, Geiger counter, First, the first thing he does is he takes readings outside of where the circular area is just to get the background radio- radiation of it. And he gets 0.12 microsieverts is the background reading, which is pretty typical for a background reading. But once he goes into the circular area where the boy said he saw uh, the UFO shine a light and, and cause the grass to, de- to be depressed, he gets a value six times higher than the background reading. Hmm. Now, six times higher than background reading is not enough to be cause for alarm in terms of you, know, you being exposed to too much radiation. Uh, but it's significantly uh, above background, and it does indicate there was something unusual within that circular area. Mm-hmm. Wow. So the, this was uh, a really interesting case. Uh, this, this is the first case that I'm aware of since I joined... Uh, MUFON as director of research in 2007, so that's been nine years, and I'm not aware of any other radiation cases in, in those nine years. Mm-hmm. It reminds me a little bit of Rendlesham in that an object that was beaming a light and um, radiation uh, traces. Uh, so fascinating. Yeah. And the last one. Which I know okay. this one was featured because uh, there's a, an incredible, uh, f- you know, animation or, or v- picture done for it, and uh, it was in, in the journal uh, a couple months ago, right? Right, that that is correct, and the animation was actually done by the primary witness. Oh wow! This case, uh, the primary witness on this case is a scientist, so that that adds a lot of credibility to a case. Uh, this case actually ranked. Uh, we started our top 10 cases in 2000, uh, beginning with the year 2012, so the 2012 cases. And I've kept, you know, how we rank the cases on a scale of 1 to 5. This case ranked higher than any case we've ever had. 
Really? Wow. Yeah. This is the highest ranking case we've ever had. Wow. Uh, it, it was reported in 2015, but it actually occurred in, on August 28th of 2013 in Ontario, Canada. Um, there were, uh, in this particular case, there were three uh, men who had gone bear hunting black, for black bear, which is a common thing to do in Ontario. Um, and so these guys are Americans. They're in Ontario. They, they videoed their black bear that they shot and they're loading them up onto a pickup truck. Uh, the sun has, you know, has already set. It's getting close to about 9.30. And they load the bear up and they're driving on an old logging road to get back to the main highway. And they're in the middle of nowhere. There's no cell service or anything out in this area. So you're, dark and you're where there's nothing i would say the nearest town was probably 10 to 15 miles away so they're in a very desolate area as they're driving down this logging road the uh, scientist is sitting in the back the other two guys are in the front and he sees a light to his right and his first thought is what is a helicopter doing in the middle of nowhere at this time of night Right? So he's kind of concerned. It's like, you know, what what's going on? Mm-hmm. So he tells the driver, you know, stop the truck. Let's, you know, I'd like to, you know, let's see what's happening. So he stops the truck and they cut off their lights. And this light continues towards them. And now it begins to move from being on the right position to the upper right to now it's straight in front of them. And at this point in time, it's so close to them that they can make out the shape. And so the, the shape of this object is the shape of a barbell. It's like you took two discs, you know, the common flying saucer type of disc, and you put a rectangular bar that connects the two of them. And each disc is rotating uh, in the opposite direction of each other. And there's a approximately a six inch to one foot purple plasma that surrounds the entire object. And as, as the object is moving, it's slowly rotating around its center. And opposite of its direction of movement is a kind of a triangular uh, sparkling type of emission but it's but this emission is not falling to the ground it's just staying within this triangular shape and he best described it as similar to the aurora borealis so this is kind of what they see right so the the scientist in the back the first thing he does is he grabs his cell phone and he to so he can take a video or picture of this object and it's, it's about 400 feet from him and it's right at treetop level. So it's between him and the, and the tree line. And when he turns on his cell phone, he says it's just like it's booting up. So his cell phone's just booting up. So he knows nothing. He's not going to get anything out of his cell phone. So he throws it down and he grabs his video camera. It's a Sony video camera that he had just been videoing the black bear. He turns on the video camera. As soon as he turns it on, it shuts off. 
So he turns it on again, it shuts off. So he, he knows he can't get his camera to work. So the next thing he does is he picks up his rifle that he'd been hunting black bear with because he has a 9X Nikon scope on his rifle. So at this point in time, he has gotten out of the, the truck and he has positioned his rifle on the front of the, uh, the truck to hold it steady as he's observing this object. The two guys in the front, one of them yells for him to shoot it. And his, re his first statement is, I'm not going to shoot something. I don't know what it is. So he begins to basically... Uh, take mental notes for the next four minutes as he as he watches this object. Um, after a, a few minutes goes by, the object begins to move away from him. Uh, at that point in time, and as it's moving away, he hands the rifle to his uh, one of his friends so they can look at it through the scope. And then he grabs his video camera again. And well, excuse me. First, he grabs his cell phone. At that point, the cell phone, it's just hot, so it's not working, mm. so he puts it back. He grabs the, cell, the video camera. This time, when he turns the video camera on, it stays on, and so he begins recording this object. Well, as he's recording it, he's looking through you know, the front of his video camera, and he can see that he cannot visually see anything. It's just noise. But he keeps on recording anyway for the next approximately three minutes. Uh, after about three minutes, the object's gone out of sight. It basically wasn't moving extremely fast. It went uh, beyond the line and disappeared. Well, once the object was gone, he, he turns on his video camera. He verifies, you know, his, his pictures of the black bear is still there. And then what he sees is that He's, he's got the recording, but he's just got noise, just like what he saw as he was looking through the camera. So this guy spent the next year having some of the engineers that worked for him um, investigate this. And he's, he's put together a white paper on it. Wow. And in this, uh, in this white paper, uh, he, he's removed a lot of the information, but he gave us uh, a good portion of it. And the reason is because he he wants to remain anonymous because mm -hmm. and I myself and the other investigator, we verified uh, who the witness is. We verified his credentials. Uh, we verified his business. We verified that he does do work for the Department of Defense. So we, we verified all of that. Um, he has plenty of money. There's no reason for this guy to just make this story up. And we also interviewed one of the other two witnesses and they confirmed the story. So, you know, in the back of your head, you're still thinking, well, why would he do this? Why would he just, is there some reason he'd make this story up? <laughs> and the other investigator, uh, Phil Leach is a former police detective. So that, that's what he always thinks of whenever he, you know, just based on his police training. And neither one of us can see any reason why this guy would just want to make up this story. Mm -hmm. And we've continued working with him. He's continued to do work trying to figure out as much as he can about the event using that 
three minute video that he still has. Uh, it, he has become, uh, I don't know if obsessed is the right word, but he, he spends a lot of time trying to figure this out. Wow. And I, I, when I went to his business, his R and D facility, um, I sat there with him and he hooked up his video camera, which he keeps locked up in a safe. He doesn't use his camera again. He keeps it just like it was. Wow. And, uh, we hooked it up to an oscilloscope. And the first thing he did is he just said, okay, here's, here's what this, uh, just, you know, trying to video with the camera, just turning the camera on, not recording, but just showing what it was picking up in the room. Uh, on the oscilloscope. And so, you, you know, you see the oscilloscope traces. And then he showed uh, what the camera picked up. Remember when he was hunting the black bear, it had begun getting dark. It wasn't totally dark, but it was dusk. And there's very, you lose color as you approach dusk and your camera doesn't pick up color. And you can see that on the oscilloscope. You can see the oscilloscope has three uh, basic screens on it, ones for red, blue, ones for green, and ones for uh, contrast or, or brightness. And you could see that the two screens that pick up color had basically just become fl a flat line, more or less, while the one that uh, picks up brightness was still active. So then we we went to when he was videoing the object and you had that noise. Well, the interesting thing here is on the two screens, uh, you know, that pick up color, they were flatlined, just like on the black bear photo. But the, the screen that was picking up brightness was picking up a signal that was coming in every 0.45 seconds. So I could see that on the video screen. So every 0.45 seconds, there was a pulse. And if you uh, go to that pulse and kind of enlarge it by looking at uh, lower voltage levels, you can see that within that pulse is a, a complex wave of pulses. So it's a complex set of pulses, and they repeat every 0.45 seconds. So as best as I can tell, this seems to be a very good case. Um, the one thing I would like to do is get a copy of his... Uh, of his video camera work that he's got, in other words, an actual copy of what he photographed. Mm -hmm. uh, but so far, he's not willing to part with his video because uh, I would like to uh, turn that over to uh, a guy in the French government work with that's part of you know, the Jupin organization, Sigma 3AF, and have some of their engineers look at it and get their blessing for you know, basically the same thing that uh, I saw when he and I were at the oscilloscope. Mm -hmm. Pretty fascinating case. And it's funny to think it's probably good he didn't shoot at it. Um, it's not good to shoot at things you don't know. Yeah. Um, on the same, you know, at the same time, if it was something really crazy, of course, he wouldn't have been able to down it, down it or something. But if he would have, then, uh, you know, he would have shot down at something odd. But uh, it's also the dangers of flying around an experimental aircraft or something. You might get shot at by people who just don't know what the hell you're, you're flying around in. 
Right, right. And the thing is, you know, if it's an experimental aircraft, what you begin to wonder about is, uh, well, and, and this guy checked with contacts that he had some Department of Defense to say, hey, he, he's shown them the video and he said to them, uh, you know, I'm kind of working on this to try to figure out what this is. And he said he asked uh, this guy that's in the Air Force, he said, is this something I should not be, sh- should I forget about looking at this anymore? And he said that, if the guy said yes, that would indicate that, yeah, that was a military craft. Mm-hmm. But the guy said, no, figure out anything you want because, you know, it's not a concern of ours. Mm-hmm. So. Wow, that's pretty fascinating. And having, you know, you are a co-writer of a book called UFOs and Government um, and uh, I mean, that kind of rings true to me and probably to you as well. When you ask someone, for instance, who works on secret projects, they either say, well, I can't comment at all or they may say, yeah, this is something you should probably just uh, let it go, meaning that it probably is ours. Um, yeah. You know, and that rings true to the type of way uh, how someone would answer a question like that. Right, right. So I, uh, everything we can, we've been able to determine is this, this isn't something that, uh, that's ours. And he believes, and I think it's a reasonable assumption, is that the reason his cameras did not work was not, he does not believe it's because the craft was trying to keep him from photographing it. Mm-hmm. He believes that the EM field that was generated by the craft was so powerful that it basically shut down because it may have overloaded like a circuit. Mm-hmm. And so if the camera has a, a, a protection circuit, for example, where if the current goes too high, it shuts itself down so that you don't destroy your camera. Hmm. Then that may be why his camera, you know, shut off. Wow. And he believes what, and I think this is reasonable, what we're picking up on on the oscilloscope is basically the EM pulses that were coming off of the the object. Mm Mm-hmm. So this is fascinating. It reminds me of some of the French cases, uh, where they feel they've recorded EM effects on plants uh, and such. Uh, so, um, and it's interesting because it lends to the, uh, you know, small amount of evidence, but uh, that is out there of, of physical trace evidence regarding these things um, that there is some sort of EM, you know, uh, a component to whatever technology this may be. Right, yeah. There does seem to be, because that's exactly the French on two famous cases in France in the 1980s, their scientists said the only thing they knew for certain is that there was some type of EM uh, field, and they felt it was most likely in the microwave or or radar range Mm -hmm. that caused the uh, effects on the plants that they measured. Pretty incredible. Now, we're pretty much out of time, which is great because we got all through these uh, really great cases. Um, And these cases will be up and the reports will be up on the MUFON site soon, probably within the next week, I would say. Right, you think? Yeah, I think so. We can probably get 
the only thing we have to do is just make sure we've removed all personal information uh, regarding the witnesses in the pool. Mm -hmm. And I'll probably be the one posting that. People don't know. Another thing I do is some of the web stuff for MUFON. Uh, so we'll hopefully get that up in the next week. But before I let you go, I want to ask you one other question. Um, having written the book UFOs in Government, I know you uh, read recently my story about uh, the Tom DeLonge meeting with Podesta and these other uh, you know, individuals, which is pretty extraordinary. I mean, Podesta, of course, would be the type of person who could get these people together, but uh, pretty extraordinary that he got to, to do a Google Hangout meeting, um, which is kind of funny because in UFO research, especially some of the groups we work with, we use Google Hangout to, to meet as well. But uh, what did you think of that? Well, I, I thought I, I read your article, Alejandro, and I thought that was right on. The, the, key, uh, the key information in those WikiLeaks is not, you know, the people who write Podesta, you know, just like, because anyone, right? You or I can write him an email mm -hmm. and it's going to show up. Um, it's more of that meeting that he had with a general who's, uh, I guess currently or, or was very recently the head of Wright Patterson uh, Air Force Base, which is the Air Force's R&D center. Uh, and then a, a gentleman, I believe his last name was Weiss, who was the vice president of advanced development for Lockheed Aerospace. And for those guys to be interested in the UFO topic, to me, says a lot within itself. Mm -hmm. And I think the way you characterized it, and I agree, we can't know for sure that they're, sh they're sharing, you know, uh, information like what Tom DeLonge's looking for. We can't know for sure they're saying, oh yeah, let's talk about these uh, craft that we've back-engineered from alien spacecraft. But at the very least, it shows an interest, and that alone is uh, pretty fascinating. Right, that absolutely, because an executive vice president of Lockheed does not spend time talking about UFOs unless there's something you know, there's some information he believes that could be valuable to him. Mm -hmm. And we have history with Skunk Works, that, uh, which almost lends to the idea, to me, that perhaps they don't really have any deep, dark secrets. Because uh, we've got files, you've, uh, you, you've highlighted them and, and others, we've got stories going back to the beginning of Skunk Works, where um, there has been an interest in UFOs where they've talked to the Air Force about sightings um, that they felt, you know, that they had themselves, that they felt were, were incredible. But, um, and, and that's what's great is that, you know, when they're consulting Blue Book on a, on a sighting, they're the ones who would know whether or not it's our technology or not. Um, so they would be more expert than the the other experts the Air Force would have. So we know they've got an interest in some of the UFO sightings uh, going back many years, um, which, and it, and that's what's great and, and interesting is that these people developing these advanced um, technologies would continue to have that interest. Right. It, it's kind of similar to the interest that this scientist has on this uh, barbell Mm -hmm. case that we just talked about because his interest is can he figure out anything 
that might help him in the work he does, uh, which is which is related to you know uh, Department of Defense type of uh, efforts. Mm-hmm. And which you know because you were a director, so was I. You still are with Mufon. When Bob Bigelow started to be getting involved with Mufon, and um, that's what he was looking for. And is this sort of stuff to give him any sort of clue of uh, a, a type of technology he could utilize for his aerospace business? And actually, John Schuessler, uh, who worked for NASA, that was his interest when he got involved. He's a board of director uh, on the board of directors for MUFON, and uh, even uh, well, um, Stanton Friedman and Bob Wood, who's also on the board. Or did Bob just retire actually from the board? Uh, yeah, Bob just he just retired, mm-hmm. or he's about to retire. I'm not sure which it was. Mm-hmm. But he also worked in the technology field. Was he with McDonnell Douglas? I think. Yeah, I can't recall if he was with McDonald. Yes, it was. Yeah. I think about. And uh, that's why he got involved. Yeah, I think this, it was McDonnell Douglas to see what sort of technology they might be able to glean from observ- observing these these objects. So, which is a real interest. Right. Pretty incredible. Well, thank you so much for, for coming and sharing these uh, cases with us once again. Um, it's funny that it's been a year since the last one, but it has been. And uh, But uh, thank you so much for giving us this insight. Oh, you're welcome. Well, have a great week, and it was great talking to you again, Alejandro. Thanks. You too. Talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you so much to Robert Powell for being on the show again. I think this group of sightings is particularly interesting. And I think what's, you know, most fascinating, or at least one of the most fascinating out of many fascinating aspects of these reports, is this idea that these triangles are some of the most incredible reports. I mean, what's up with that? Of course, as we talked about with Martin earlier in the show, some people think, well, maybe they're military and they're so advanced that they're trying to make you think that there's something else. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, But of course, as these descriptions uh, by Robert or by these witnesses and others have been, uh, they seem to be technology that is certainly beyond, quite beyond anything that we can do, especially even back in the 90s or 80s when those sightings took place. Um, You know, this technology is is much, much, much more advanced than anything we have to this day. So what's going on? I don't know. I wish I had some answers. I just do not. You know what? I'm not going to lie to you people. I don't know what the heck is going on. Speaking of kind of a chevron-shaped craft, it's the Phoenix Lights. And next year will be the 20th anniversary of the Phoenix Lights. In fact, that's going to be kind of the theme uh, for the Art and the UFO Congress next year. So wait till you see the artwork when it comes out. It's super awesome. Uh, We have a guy, Eric McFarlane. I mean, I, I don't think... Anybody, any of you would disagree with some of our cool artwork we have on our website and other places. And uh, he's coming up with some really cool stuff for the UFO Congress this year. But we're going to have a running thing. We're going to have interviews and stuff like that running in between uh, the talks, all focused on the Phoenix Lights. Uh, one of the cool things that's going on out here is that for the last couple of years, the uh, Museum of, of 
It's like the Historic Society Museum here in Arizona. They actually put up a Phoenix Lights um, display that they've got there. It's, it's, I think it's a permanent display, but they've had it up there for quite some time, and they keep improving upon it. And I think only recently, in the last couple of months, they, they have their final uh, version of it, so it's completely finished. Very cool. So we'll have videos and pictures from there and some interviews with the people who put that together. Some of the people who put that together are Phoenix Mufon, who I hung out with last weekend, just got back yesterday. We did a camping trip. So every year we do a camping trip. It's a lot of fun. Travis Walton lives in the area. He comes out. He came out for a few hours on Saturday night. He brings his guitar. Everybody plays guitar. Uh, People sometimes play their guitar and sing. A very musical group. And uh, talk about all kinds of different stuff, including, of course, UFOs. So um, it was a lot of fun. We even told a couple ghost stories around the fire this time. So it was a lot of fun. But uh, Phoenix Mufon, great group. They helped out with that Phoenix Lights display. And so we'll even have a couple interviews with them, with uh, Jim and Stacy, who head up that group here in Phoenix. They have a great group here. They bring in uh, speakers every month, and they have like 100, 150 people there. I mean, they have great crowds. So very strong group here. Um, I think uh, a lot of people in MUFON will tell you that they're a great group. So anyway, otherwise, uh, we also have other speakers posted, as I told you before, on the UFO Congress website. So we have this professor from Norway coming to talk about their university, a decades-long university studies into a UFO phenomena in Norway called the Hestelin Lights. He's the latest entry. But we have pretty much all the speakers listed. So we have a couple we're, we're working on still or getting the details worked out. And they are really exciting. Uh, but you'll find out about those soon. But go to the UFO Congress to sign up. Don't forget to read these cool stories that have been writing about WikiLeaks and everything else, but uh, visit our YouTube channel because we have more UFO photographs, we have UFO reports, and uh, lots of stuff going up there. And then for videos, video lectures from the UFO Congress, you can find them on our video portal. So just for a few bucks a month, you can watch just tons and tons of lectures you're not going to get anywhere else. People like Jacques Vallée, um, you know, um, Bob Lazar, George Knapp, some of these other people we've talked about. So some cool stuff. And then at the conference, we kind of talked about it. You know, John um, Alexander, he's one of our popular YouTube videos, him talking about Skinwalker. But you got to hear even more about it last week. But he'll be at the conference talking about his extraordinary experiences uh, recently as well. Uh, and Erica Luke's. So earlier in the show, Robert Powell and I talked about that case in Utah. Erica Lukes was the state director for MUFON at the time, and me and and her talked about this case on uh, a podcast, you know, months ago. However, she's also going to be at the conference, and one of the things she'll be talking about is the latest on that case. So very excited to have Erica Lukes at the conference and many others. So it's going to be a lot of lot of fun. So go to UFO Congress dot com for more information about that that's about all thank you so much to caleb hanks for the open and close music thank you for uh, martin willis 
joining us with the news uh, from Podcast UFO at the beginning of the show. And, of course, thank you for listening. Until next week, adios muchachos. Let's